0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And you know what I'm going to say, we've got so much to cram in in our time together. If it's okay with all of you, I'm going to reflect on the wider lessons of the BBC Gary Lineker affair. And uh, pose the question: Will they be learnt? Uh, then we come to your questions. I've got loads of questions about uh, the Lineker affair. I probably won't go to them if it's okay with you, because we kind of we're all on the same terrain. Uh, but I read them all, and it's kind of. Fueled the thoughts that I'm having uh, when we uh, go to that bit of the podcast section, Uh, but lots of other really interesting questions, including some on the Danny Finkelstein interview and all kinds of other things. I'm still getting lots in, by the way, on the Neil Lawson interview. It's interesting when you delve deep with people free to kind of really reflect on uh, Labour's current position so yeah that will come up if it's okay gonna keep on saying it and i shouldn't if it's okay with all of you i'm going. a few notices uh first of all uh, if you subscribe to patreon the bonus podcasts are mounting up and this series of troublemakers uh is focusing on nigel Farage in the bonus uh, podcast thanks to all of those of you who do subscribe and we're now well into March and live events are kicking off for me for the first time this year. I took a break from live events on for January and February for various reasons. So, uh, this Friday, uh, at the York Literary Festival. Uh, um, uh, uh, St. Peter's School in York and you can get tickets via the Theatre Royal and I'll put the link on the blurb for the podcast. I'll be talking there about my book The Prime Ministers We Never Had from Rab Butler to Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, yeah. By the way, they. This is how fast politics moves. After Liz Truss became prime minister, the publishers of that book phoned and said, "Oh, Steve, what about a, a new chapter for the prime Ministers We never had on Rishi Sunak." Well, thank God I never wrote that one. Anyway, uh, then Birmingham on March the twenty-first at the One Thousand Trades Club, I think it is called King's Place. Say the first time. Uh, this year on March the 23rd. And that is the week I think Boris Johnson is scheduled to appear in front of the Privileges Committee about bloody time, um, which will be a moment of significance and drama. And, of course, it's being televised. also follows this week's budget and all the other twists and turns. Uh, Then uh, Belfast on Sunday, March the 26th at the Black Box Hill Street – each show will be different, but that will obviously be a different show. That will be kind of a letter from Westminster, trying to make sense of things from Westminster, but I hope the audience will there give the perspective from Belfast. Um, I'm not going to arrogantly, loftily declaim <laughs> flying in from a London airport. Then, on March the 29th, Rope Tackle uh, Art Centre in Shoreham. Then on April the 1st, the Witham at Barnard Castle, Witham Art Centre. And then, on April the 24th, the legendary Old Market Theatre in Brighton. So, uh, tickets for all those shows will be on the blurb for this podcast. See you there. We are in interesting times. I think, in some ways, more interesting than the kind of dramas last autumn, you know, the fall and summer, the fall of Johnson, the fall of because all that was played out very much in the open, Here we have to go behind the scenes to sort of find out what's really going on when prime ministers aren't falling every 10 minutes, because that's in front of our eyes, if you know what I mean. Anyway, talk about a fast moving story happening in front of our eyes. The BBC Lineker saga there are many lessons and it is important i know it's been done to death as a theme in recent days and many have argued there are so many bigger things going on uh but of course it was the bbc itself that uh got it out of all proportion i'll come to that in a moment but why it matters is this if you um have any of you watched gb news or talk tv I don't know how they get away with it uh, in terms of Ofcom. You've got Jacob Rees-Mogg, Nigel Farage. You had a surreal thing on one of those channels at the weekend with two Tory MPs, Esther McVeigh and her husband, uh, Philip Davis, I think he is, interviewing the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt. I mean, this is getting ridiculous. Uh, And so a robust BBC, strongly led, is uh, more important than ever in the current climate and it has been anything but that for a long time the sequence matters we, we on the rock and roll politics cooperative need to step back from the storm which has been at least temporarily resolved uh, with Gary Lineker coming back and the BBC in effect uh, caving into him uh, he hasn't had to apologize and all the other things which some were screaming for but in a way, the reason why it became so big was this, that uh, the BBC decided all day to lead with the row over Lineker's tweet. Um, and this was the day after the bill, which we all need to look at and make sense of. It is, in its sweeping imprecision, an appalling piece of legislation. But anyway, the BBC had a bit of time for that, but they were more worked up about Linica. Why did they choose to lead with it all day. This was before the announcement that he was to be suspended. That happened on the Friday. They led with it all day on the Thursday. And the answer is very simple. There are two or three, actually, but the main one is the Telegraph and the Mail splashed with it. And at that point, uh, nervy BBC editors would have thought, first of all, oh, well, we better follow it up. You know, if you have anyone on, swella Brevman, Yvette Cooper, ask... Ask them what they think. Um, and then some editor or lots of different editors, oh, right, oh, yeah, the Mail and the Telegraph. So we, we, should, we better watch out that they might accuse us of being too liberal. We'll lead with it. And so they all did. That's the main reason. And the main reason they never did anything with Andrew Neal or Lord Sugar and these other people is because the Mail and the Telegraph do not lead with uh, uh, the use of the BBC of these figures who they are more in line with. Uh, Andrew Neil now writes a column for The Mail. Uh, He presented seven political programmes a week at one point while he was publisher of The Spectator and occasionally tweeted provocatively and the BBC did nothing. And there were three reasons for that, all interconnected. Uh, One BBC manager admitted to me they were too scared of Andrew Neil to ever challenge him. Two, and, and that was not just him, although it was partly him, uh, but they were scared of what the right-wing newspapers would do if he was ever challenged. And so th- there was this sort of protective shield around him because he was seen to be on the right on one of these uh, newspapers. and But the second thing is, because they didn't the right-wing papers splash with any of these tweets. There was no sense of it being a news story. Uh, It became a news story or or, or a lead news story. It is of interest uh, if Gary Lineker, uh, with one of the most famous people in Britain, tweets about this appalling uh, bill. Some of us Uh, certainly me admired him for doing so he could have an easy life he has a great life you know he's wealthy loves football presents football programs but he is concerned and engaged and that is admirable yeah I think I said there were three reasons but uh, why uh, Andrew Neil and Lord Sugar don't get the same prominence as a news story when they did things. Um, And it's absolutely clear to me that if there was an equivalent uh, to Andrew Neil, who was the publisher of The New Statesman, uh, he or she would not get seven political programs a week. The reason being, they would be these various, very timid managers, terrified of the onslaught. So Lineker became a story because they they followed it up. And then you get a dark dance between the Daily Mail and the BBC because the BBC led with it all day. They had endless interviews all day. Uh, The Mail could pick up from those interviews and form another splash on the Friday saying Lineker must go and all the rest of it. And it was on the Friday that the Director General announced he was going to be suspended. And then, of course, famously by... The Monday, he was back, Gary Lineker. Now, this raises several things. First of all, the influence of the Mail, the Times, and the Telegraph is, is, is utterly malevolent. And this raises another on the BBC. Um, it's up, the mail can do what they want. The Telegraph can do what they want. You know, and so can the Times, uh, who I've got no doubt will endorse the Tories at the next election and, and, and tilt their news coverage accordingly. The, the BBC to be so—it's partly fear, and but it's also partly just oh yeah, they're they're doing it. They they've got their pulse on the people in inverted commas, what the people think. And so the other reason why the Linica thing became a news story is there are some, you know, kind of they think it's quite macho. They they know what the viewers want, what the listeners want, you know, in in this multi-layered BBC hierarchy. So they say, yeah, yeah, this is the story. Go with Linica, Go with the Lineker story. Um, why they think they have the pulses is, is, you know, who knows, but. It will be, yeah, everyone knows Lineker, he's famous, they want to know what he's up to, you know, and brackets were also pleasing the Tory press and maybe the Tory press will start being nice to us. That won't happen. And so anyway, it got that prominence. But there are wider issues than that, although that's obviously an important one. For example, soon in the run up to the next election, the Mail, the Times, the Telegraph will turn their guns on Starmer. And that will have a big influence on the BBC, the way it sees things, the way it interviews people will be influenced by the stance these papers take. And, of course, you get the newspaper review on this Today programme, which says, the mail says Keir Starmer is blah, 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 and so on. And so the dance will, I suspect, continue. But the other issues uh, it raises is about robust, strong... Leadership with a sense of purpose, which the BBC has lacked for a long, long time now. Um, you, you see, the issues around Richard Sharp, I think, are a bit of a, a red herring. It's obviously important uh, that... Uh, and he will have arrived with a set of assumptions about what impartiality means. He'll have talked to his Tory mates, oh, they're all on the left, you know, sort them out, Richard, kind of thing. Um, But that's not uncommon. If you read the diaries of Woodrow Wyatt, who was a journalist in the 1980s, a a very influential one who hung around Tory circles, spoke to Thatcher every day on the phone virtually. And he was friends with the then chairman a Tory called Mama Duke Hussey. And he says in his diary, I was at a party with Duke Hussey and everyone was telling him to sack uh, a then... Today program presenter Brian Redhead, who they thought was biased, and and as you say, he asked sorted out. He never did actually, because the then director general uh, John Burt had a real sense of purpose. Uh, The last leader at the BBC to have such a sense of purpose, and he easily stood his ground and wouldn't have succumbed in such a crude way as uh, Tim Davy did. More than that, it was naive and weak. To claim impartiality as your mission, as Sharp and Davy has done many times, impartiality is a duty, and it has always been. You know, sometimes BBC managers say to me, "Oh, we're trusted more than newspapers and so." On. Well, you should be. You know, they're legally obliged, as part of the deal, as a publicly funded broadcaster, to be impartial. So to turn it into a crusade implies terrible failure in the past. And as, say, from the perspective of someone like, uh, from the Tories, uh, that would be to the left. It's a complete fantasy. But also impartiality is complex and nuanced and was bound, if you elevate it, to a sort of new goal to cause a thousand problems unless there was absolute precision, as to what they meant by this and who it applied to and this is another problem with the BBC in recent years a tendency to haziness and lazy thinking as they go about their various missions Um, someone should have said to Davy, who has had no experience as a journalist one of the few I think perhaps the only DG not to have emerged from kind of news and current affairs um, well what precisely do you mean by this? And are you applying it to celebrities, football presenters, as well as those in news and current affairs? How are we going to deal with Twitter and all the rest of it? Instead, you have this insane situation where you say this is your goal. And he's been saying that for years now, uh, since he's been DG, two years or whatever it is. And then you find that your only way through this current madness is to commission an independent review of uh, what bbc can do on social media they're always commissioning independent reviews from outsiders because they haven't got the capacity to think things through themselves um, with the clarity required and this is a sort of wider problem uh you know under davy in fairness to davy at least he is accountable It's why so many director generals have been forced to resign, that they are in the end accountable for what happens. And he's had to stood up. He's done an interview and so on, although it took a long time because I assume because he was in Washington. He's got under him an army of senior managers. Didn't anyone sit with him and say, if you suspend Lineker, what do we do if others back him? Now, this, even the weakest political leader, would have a discussion about what would happen if X happens and then Y happens. uh, What is our line? How do we hold the fort? Instead, there's chaos. And again, there was a slowness to respond. I read in The Times that the senior managers uh, uh, responsible for sport made no communication uh, until the chaos had been erupting around them on a Saturday afternoon. By then it was all too late Um, but there is a slowness to respond. Uh, There was no one uh, defending the decision on Saturday's Today programme. Now maybe it was Davies' decision alone although he must have consulted Um, but in politics if someone's in trouble they themselves might not be put up but someone else would you know, junior minister, cabinet, another cabinet minister, nothing. They are too cocooned and hidden away in never-ending meetings where they all kind of agree with each other, uh, try to decide what their senior is thinking, and a zeitgeist surfaces which isn't properly scrutinized. And then things erupt and they don't know what to do because they are so cocooned most of the time. And that's a common theme. When the whole Gilligan affair erupted over Iraq and uh, weapons of mass destruction, it was not the case that Gilligan just said something in one two way on the Today programme at ten seven in the morning. He was allowed to write a long article for the Mail on Sunday, and this is another thing. Uh, BBC people are often allowed to write for the Mail. You try and get an article in the Guardian. Oh my God, we can't let them do that. Don't don't do that. No, no, we I will I oh, will be accused of being left or oh. fear 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 fear. Mail, yeah sure Andrew write a piece for the mail on Sunday uh, I had to read it again recently for a book I'm writing it's the woolliest set of allegations uh, anyone could have written but it got through the system then uh, and then the BBC popped up the senior manager, to quote defend every word Gilligan said um, and It couldn't have been the case that every word was accurate. You just had to read it to know that there were flaws in what he was saying, even though the essence had a truth to it. And they they misread it, partly because they were excited that the right-wing newspapers were finally backing them because those right-wing papers hated Blair at the time but also because they're just not used to it. There are too many managers with blurred lines of responsibility and are disconnected from the output. And I think that's another reason why the whole Lineker thing happened. They are so disconnected. I think they underestimated the degree to which, for viewers and listeners, the BBC is Lineker, uh, Emily Maitlis, Andrew Marr, John Sobel, all those who've gone. Uh, Lewis Goodall, they let go, who would have been the most brilliant political editor, but because he was accused of being on the left, that was it for him, uh, even though the accusations were wholly unfair. They all went, almost by accident. Uh, they, the, that, that's the BBC, but within these cocooned managers, they think they are the BBC, protecting itself from itself, but they are the problem as all these crises have shown. So the lessons are clear. First of all, don't be swayed by uh, any newspaper, right or left. Uh, but but given the sway tends to be with these mighty bullying newspapers, forget it. Don't be influenced by them when they're splashing on their particular partisan causes. Uh, you have to be strong because, you know, there they all are in Broadcasting House and the newspapers arrive either online or in physical form. It's about the only sort of contact with the outside world at some points of the day. And then the Twitter Twitterati march in, you know, on the right, they're all scared of them as well. Forget it, you've got to be strong. But the other thing is this organisation needs uh, robust leadership more widely. And that means every single editor should have some direct link with the output. And if they don't, get rid of them. Uh, the posts. Um, there are far too many of them, and uh, it, it's impossible to work out precisely what they do. I remember during one election when I think it was uh, Nick Robinson was political editor, or maybe it was after that, I kept on bumping into people, managers, saying, My job is I'm managing Nick. And I thought, bloody hell, he can think for himself anyway. But all these people, you know, and if anything went wrong, they'll suddenly find they weren't there at that key moment. There has to be, because by having clear lines of responsibility, it leads to a greater rigor of thinking. And that's the other thing. You need people in there who are brave enough to think for themselves and not just see where the zeitgeist is going in a meeting and leave everything unchallenged. Because this is going to happen again. And at some point, one of these crises is going to blow the BBC off course completely. And so they've got to be, their response to these things is so hopeless because they are not used to this collision with the outside world. And when it happens, they hide. It's happened with the, every affair that, you know, BBC has to say, we invited someone from the BBC to appear, but no one was available. And yet, all these managers, when they talk, oh, we must hold these politicians to account, other cliches, oh yeah, we must get politics out of Westminster. All these cliches go on. What is the purpose of news and current affairs? Match of the day is fine, and incidentally the, you know one of our themes is the BBC is biased against allowing people to breathe Well, on Match of the day, they have two panelists, often the same ones, and it 's great; it works as a format um. You know, whereas the sort of Laura Coonsworth show, 25 guests, you know, three panellists, each allowed a minute each in total and so on. So Mash today is fine. But what is the news and current affairs purpose in this world of Twitter and so on? And I think they should look at the John Burt thing of a mission to explain, a bias against understanding. And that would begin to lead to an intelligent framing. So they would say, oh, our mission is impartiality. You know, she might be speaking Latin in its imprecision. You know, say it's a basic function, responsibility of the BBC to be impartial. Anyway, there we are. There's are some thoughts. Uh, uh, and will those lessons be learned? I doubt it. What happens is there's a big crisis um, at the BBC and then it all calms down and uh, the managers go back into that cocooned world where actually most of them, except for Davy, have been throughout this and on they go until the next crisis. I fear that's the case, in which case, say, one of them is going to topple this thing over. And it it was interesting that it was being used, this crisis, for staff normally scared and fearful of acting against what often is an inept, naive management to kind of lots to walk out and so on, because, again, they had this protective shield of multimillionaire, footballers who could afford to um, lead the way. Um, so it was an interesting moment uh, and and one that I hope establishes a new pattern because we want the BBC to flourish but if it carries on like this I'll be joining Charles Moore and not paying a license fee. You know they've got to watch it they, they, they're sort of managing to alienate just about everybody whereas if they had that sense of mission and made intelligent decisions. The next thing, by the way, they, as you know, they've axed BBC News 24 and merging it with World News, giving Sky News a wholly exclusive role as a domestic news broadcaster. You watch that unfold. Uh, not thought through properly. Uh, decisions made again. It, it's, it's like, you know, the sending helicopters over Cliff Richard house no one's Oh, are you sure about this you know oh, machismo this will be itn this will be sky it's too shallow the thinking and um, if it wants to save itself from itself there needs to be a restructuring and fresh minds in that building anyway now over to you as i said earlier uh loads of questions thank you on the bbc but i'm going to do other things in the questioning session and if you want to join in uh, with our rock and roll politics cooperative it's steve 14 at icloud.com steve rick 14 at icloud.com so off we go first of all from Dr. Dawn Renfrew. And she makes a point I was thinking about uh, after uh, interviewing uh, Danny Finkelstein the other day. So I'll read it and then I'll tell you my reflections. Dawn says, thank you for your great and informative podcast. Oh, thank you very much, uh, which I enjoy listening to on a regular basis. Please allow me to tell you very politely, Dawn, I like that. Please allow me to tell you that I felt a bit frustrated when you were interviewing Danny Finkelstein, however. You didn't seem to want to challenge him over his support for Cameron and Osborne's disastrous austerity policy of the early 2010s. The impact of this being namely stagnation of real wages, a slow destruction of public services and an excess of 120,000 deaths. It may have contributed to people voting for a Brexit which was missold to them. I think it not may i think it was the seeds were sown with austerity dawn i'm retired now but previously worked in public services over 30 years and i was able to witness up close the damage done sometimes i think it's hard for people like danny to appreciate or understand this yeah well uh a couple of thoughts uh dawn first of all i certainly didn't want to turn the interview or conversation they're meant to be sort of conversations really into a kind of interrogation because I think if people were kind enough to give up their time for, uh, to join us a lot on the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, um, I think it's a bit unfair then to, to do a sort of Jeremy Paxman on them. I did raise it, uh, uh, if anyone hasn't heard it or wants to go back, because i had this conversation with him once before, I mentioned it on Newsnight, about what is the centre ground, and it was during that period, and he argued that that austerity package was centrist and moderate. And I argued it was turbocharged Thatcherism. You can argue whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I thought it was a bad thing. But don't claim it to be on the centre ground. And I, I, that is my view. And I, and I don't think it was technocratic or just about timing, as he suggested in the conversation. So I think I put it to him. But I think I put it to him, Dawn, politely, uh, as you were very polite to me at the beginning of the email and said so i didn 't really want to these conversations in the second podcast of the week will be conversations i 'm not going to do a paxman on these people, um, but I hope I will raise the issues you know, and I think that was raised but you 're right I think the austerity the two thousand and ten real term spending cuts just as the economy was breathing again through actually um, government spending, not cuts you know that that big stimulus boost that emerged from the g20 in london uh, and other measures uh, got the economy breathing again then in they came and those real term spending cuts um, actually had the opposite impact to the one that they claimed it was going to be thank you dawn thank you the others who emailed about the interview with uh, danny please listen to it if uh, you haven't it's joy of podcasts it's all there Um, uh, Dominique Jewell our French correspondent this is interesting I like Dominique because she gives a a perspective we don't get through the very parochial British media anyway this is after the Macron-Sunak meeting the Franco-Britannique summit which took place yesterday in Paris Dominique must be writing on Saturday has been reported in the press in both countries but with widely different emphases and with considerably different degrees of interest On the eve of the meeting between Macron and Sunak, TV France 24 interviewed its political correspondent based in London and its political editor. The former began by asking us to imagine the unimaginable, namely that the president of France, one of the two nuclear powers in Europe, would hesitate for a second when asked if the other nuclear power was friend or foe. That's a reference to what Liz Truss did when asked that during the leadership contest. And isn't it interesting? When you have people like that playing the populist card, the consequences go on and on. Words are not forgotten. Politics is about words. So isn't it interesting that France uh, focused on that in the media? He then went on to describe how Boris Johnson had sent Lord Frost to the EU with an agenda to disrupt the negotiations by insulting the EU on the orders of the UK PM with the aim of gaining domestic political advantage. Thus was the state of relations between the two countries framed. Yeah, well, Dominica, on that front, of course, the crass naive self-harming approach of johnson and lord frosty frost um, the consequences are playing out for decades to come to britain's detriment huge huge detriment and isn't it interesting that in france they don't forget Um, why should they the summit agenda was reported as the war in ukraine energy security and immigration issues Post-summit, all five media outlets which I consulted, Le Figaro, Le Monde, France 24, France 3 and Orange, uh, reported the jury's out response of Liz Truss before going on to conclude that the UK PM agreed with the French president the war in Ukraine will eventually end with negotiation. I was reminded of the vilification of a Pisa Macron meted out by the British right-wing newspapers when he made that very point months ago. Yeah, uh, well, Dominica, uh, the theme of this podcast today is the influence of British right-wing newspapers, which remains huge uh, in Britain, uh, and their capacity to frame debates, frame the way people think, uh, is incredible. Uh, in fact, to go back to the Lineker tweet, the point, one of the points he made was that we take in far fewer refugees than many other countries. And yet a lot of people here uh, think we take virtually them all. And the other countries, you know, we're having our house sorted out it's chaos because of subsidence. It's being pinned, what's it called, underpinned. And some of the people working on it said, you know, why do we take them all? And we don't. Uh, But that is the kind of tone Meanwhile, much of the coverage of the summit in the UK media has emphasised the agreement to build a detention centre in France without any explanation in brackets of who will detain whom and what the objectives are. Uh, Yeah, uh, I know, I know. Um, Well, as I say, it's a theme, of the British media... Uh, Paul Cooper doesn't think it'll work anyway. He says, since deportation figures are too low, why does the government think a new immigration scheme will allow tens of thousands of people to be deported? I would have thought the majority would just slip into a burgeoning shadow economy and into the shadows in general. Yeah, I think even before that point, Paul, um, I wonder how much of this the legislation is so sweeping and imprecise in uh, who it is targeting in this uh, so-called stop the boats policy. I wonder if it'll even get to, to that point. Anyway, thank you on all of that. Now from the, that theme, and we must explore it more. It's, it, it's you know, they had hardly any time to scrutinise this legislation in the comments. Over to Scotland. Peter Wright wonders whether, you know, I was talking about last week, uh, whether the spell cast by brilliant leaders and whatever you think of them, Personally, or in terms of other policy areas, uh, Sturgeon and Salmon were, were were formidable leaders and were able to sort of cast a spell over the internal divisions vis-a-vis the SNP and many other things. Peter Wright wonders, Sturgeon's resignation has blown all that out of the water and the manoeuvring around the leadership election has pulled the curtain back on the reality of the SNP a coalition of groups like any other party but one with a very strong right wing, with socially conservative and economically dry views this may not be a problem for an SNP membership which is older and more small C conservative but it's very much a problem for younger voters and non-SNP diehards Peter wonders whether this is a turning point in Scottish politics and therefore British uh, politics. Certainly what SNP people who I speak to have said to me so much is, look, the potency of the independence issue is because so many young people want it. Now, if this leadership contest alienates young people in Scotland, they have a very big problem. Uh, And anyway, well, let's see. Uh, We'll soon know who that first minister is. And yeah, I reflected on it in a couple of podcasts ago for new listeners who want to catch up. Got a lot of catching up to do for your new listeners, but I hope there are many new listeners. Now, this is interesting from Henry. About, I mentioned at the beginning of last week's podcast, you know, this series I'm doing on Patreon about troublemakers. How, uh, actually, given the Labour Party has this reputation of being virtually unleadable uh, or did used to, um, it is much easier to find troublemakers on the right and in the Tory Party to do in these bonus podcasts than in the Labour Party. You know, I did Tony Benn as the first episode, and he remains a, a fascinating figure. On so many different levels. But I was struggling to find others that meet that definition of troublemaker. Anyway, I thought I'd read this out because it's fun to do a bit of history. I'm listening to your podcast and you talked about a lack of Labour troublemakers. I was thinking a generation prior to Michael Foote and Tony Benn, what about Bevan? He set the frame for the left for the next half century, resigned in 1950, attacked Churchill in the war, and his dispute with Gateskill shaped the politics arguably of the 50s and also 60s and 70s. Without Bevan's troublemaking, do you get Wilson in 63, who is sort of his heir, and do you get Ben and Foot in the 70s without that example? And then he goes on to Stafford Cripps. Cripps, I think, must have been a horror to lead. The only person, I think, who was thrown out of the Labour Party and uh, maintained a proper political career, not like Galloway, but became a wartime minister and even was seen by some as a replacement for Churchill. Uh, Enjoy the podcast. Looking forward to King's Place later this month. Oh, well, see you there, Henry. Now, this is interesting. You see, what is a definition of a troublemaker? Um, You know, Bevan... Uh, unquestionably, uh, was a, uh, posed a problem for leaders after he resigned from the cabinet over prescription charges. Uh, so he was an immediate troublemaker for Attlee by going, as did Harold Wilson. He doesn't quite fit the category because he was this brilliant uh, health secretary and incidentally housing as well was his responsibility two of the biggest jobs in government uh, in the 1945 Labour government so he wasn't one of those with a mindset uh, like say Enoch Powell who I've done in that series who uh, although ambitious wasn't ambitious enough ever to sort of make it to the uh, top in politics. Uh, And after he was sacked in 68, after that rivers of blood speech from the front bench by Ted Heath, was never on the front bench again. Now, I know Bevan was never on the front bench again after he resigned from the cabinet. But in a way, that was partly because Labour weren't in power again in his lifetime. And he wanted to do things as a policymaker in a cabinet so does that quite meet the you know troublemaker thing but it's a good point and similarly with Cripps as you say Cripps was a wartime minister in the coalition and then a fascinating chancellor I mean he is very interesting uh he was an early troublemaker who made an accommodation with power big time and in a way that's why I said the shadow cabinet members said oh, Michael Foote not so sure because of course Michael Foote was an employment secretary a leader of the house in the you know, the storms of the 70s government, loyal to Callaghan, then became Labour leader. Does he fit as a troublemaker? I think Michael, if he were alive today, would like actually to be seen as a troublemaker. So I'm going to reflect a bit more. The the next one will be announced uh, very shortly for uh, March is Farage, so it'll be April. But it's, it's, it's an interesting theme. Now we go to Mark Holling, our North Berwick correspondent, who's on, a, on trains in Spain, listening to the podcast on trains as the Spanish countryside whirls past him. Oh, he's, of course, yeah, being North Berwick, uh, is looking at the independence argument. There are clearly still many Scots who feel that independence is worth changing everything, whatever the cost. But to my mind, surely the experience of Brexit just shows what a dog's dinner that would be. The Scottish independence movement just doesn't seem to be able to answer the key questions on how trade and borders and currencies would be managed. Labour's plans for more devolution could help here. And I feel they need to step up and push this more... uh, north of the border as well as in England. Uh, I think they plan to, uh, Mark, uh, do a big thing about their plans for uh, Scotland quite soon. I presume they're waiting for the SNP leadership contest to be over. I've heard, uh, back to Mark, I've heard Anna Sawa, leader of Scottish Labour, speak and have been very impressed. He's one of those politicians who can tell a story, potentially a teacher. As you often say, an important requirement of uh, a leader. Yeah, um, absolutely. And he is, he, he is impressive. They finally come across someone who can do this thing about teaching, learning uh, to explain why you are making a certain point, not just making the point part of the art of it and tonal variety and humor and things, which, which, which in their different ways Sturgeon and Salmond did as well. On the wider point, we have many listeners on this podcast who are pro independence in Scotland, uh, walking in Port Meadow or running up Arthur's Seat or having a drink in Glasgow and so on. So I, I wait their responses. But there we are. See you at the Edinburgh Fringe, Mark. He says he's coming to the Fringe last two weeks of the uh, festival, uh, every day, different show every day. finally jerry fox in exeter he was on a train uh, writing his email of course the train broke down uh, had to get onto another train um and he says us passengers of the 2003 are now fi- filling the carriages of the later train uh due to a wiper fault on our chaotic wiper fault on our chaotic railways yet we all remain in good spirits is this effect related to acceptance or familiarity? I wonder whether you could invite Christian Walmer, he was a travel specialist we had on recently, back for his reflection on how the public psychologically cope with this infrastructure of uncertainty. What a great idea, Jerry! I well, I, I don't know whether I've will him back quite so soon, but yeah, I think it affects us all psychologically. This, uh, you know, you go out, and you've no idea what you're going to face with the chaotic trains and all the terrible weak infrastructure have you read about hs2 you know it it seems now it's going to run from i don't know east grinstead to brighton or something You, you know what i mean it's just uh we can't do these projects why why big theme for another podcast well i hope you got to wherever you were trying to get to and finally, uh, Louise Davis-Jones, I'm reading this because I focused on the BBC today, but obviously there is this substance of the issue, uh, and, and she writes about the substance, and again looks for precision, and there isn't any precision in this bill. Uh, there are a few answers to specific hypotheticals. Why are asylum seekers bad? Why are economic migrants bad? How does an Iranian fully bilingual teacher say, with family in UK, get here through safe and legal routes? What are these routes? Why not set up consular offices near various parts to process the claims? Why not work directly with councils on resettlement, e.g. housing, medical facilities, language, cultural education? Why not apply more funding... for? overseas aid to raise economic standards if economic migrants are a bad thing why not tackle uk-based smugglers that we have recently been made aware of uh, anyway one could go on as she says and my daughter is treating me to a few days in london and i'll be at the live show at king's place on march the 23rd oh well see you and your daughter there yeah these are the questions see, this is a a story of hard grind to tackle an issue of criminality But it's become, through uh, misinformation, a story, you know, of Britain is being flooded and, oh, yeah, they can't... public services can't cope. The public services here are terrible, but for different reasons. So you pose all the kind of precise questions which have been lost in this uh, debate. Anyway, well, I think that will be it uh, for now, if that's okay with all of you. Hopefully you've done some jogging or baking or walking uh, your dog or walking alone with the podcast or whatever say thank you for all your other questions uh which we haven't had time to get through today and on the lineka one where um i kind of was inspired by many of them uh to reflect uh on that today so see you very soon for um yeah well it'll be a conversation polite conversation with um uh someone uh, later on in the week we've got the budget so it's a big big week uh for politics and economics uh yeah so loads we need to keep in touch on and make sense of when we gather together again very soon oh yeah do subscribe if you subscribe um you get these automatically rather than having to think oh yeah what's he up to oh check it out and then forget and then you have to listen back to loads to keep up with the dramas so do subscribe and if you could leave a review but only if you like it that would be great uh, because it does things in this world this podcast world of which podmasters which produces this podcast are the kings and queens anyway thank you to them thank you to all of you and see you all very soon take care bye